I heard of Tim Borsky well before I met him and saw him too in his art form. His reputation was that of intrigue. He was doing things we'd never heard of, hanging from bridges and handlining giants with fins. When I first walked into his home on Craig Key many years ago, my eyes spun with all the nuances that surround people with an expansive life of imagination. His brilliantly painted warbler birds were outrageous. Canvases, brushes, and rods filled a disheveled room. I knew I was in the presence of a busy mind. Many years later, with a great spectrum of success and notoriety, Tim Borsky is sought out for his many attributes. People want his art, his flies, his company on a boat, his storied tales of reptile chasing, or just to be in the presence of one of the most eccentric people I've ever known. I know you'll enjoy this time with Tim as much as we did. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Timmy, thank you for being on the Millhouse. Thanks for having me. It was, it was tough getting you. It was, but I'm glad that we were successful. Yeah, for sure. You, you know how revered and loved you are? Do you feel no. the love? No. <laughs> I think you do. You've been around a long time here in the Keys, but I think that your notoriety through your painting, your fishing skills, um, all the things that you are passionate about. I mean, there are so many things that that are contained in the Tim Borsky world. Persona. Finish this statement. Tim Borsky is. Tim Borsky is a hunter. Whether he's hunting fish, hunting birds, hunting deer, hunting snakes, looking for something specifically doing it correctly, and then achieving that has always offered me great rewards, great satisfaction. I don't care if I'm looking for the lost bottle of steak sauce in the back of my fridge. I'm looking for that. I'm doing it correctly. There it is. Like, <laughs> See that? <laughs> Bam, on the counter. Success. How does that translate to you being an artist? Um, you know, 
trying to recreate in my own particular style or way or head what I see through my experiences in the field, around the house, in the studio, while driving the truck around, and putting that on a piece of paper or canvas or a board where I know it will almost assuredly outlive me. I like that. I just like having something that I've done out there for timeless a long time. Are you concerned or conscious of your mortality by saying that it raises that question? Well, that wasn't the angle I was going. And no, that doesn't concern me at all. I just like putting something solid on a material that I like, that I personally like well enough to put my name on. Once it's gone, it's gone. But, you know, I know that stuff is out there and, and I like the idea of that. Is it difficult for you to paint? I, I see that you're speaking about uh, being a perfectionist, doing things right. You're saying, I want to be a predator, but do it rightly so in how the process and journey takes place. Is it hard for you to be a painter and finish a piece? No, but I will say that some days are better than others. <laughs> Just like fishing. And I'll also say that not everything I touch with a brush ever gets a signature from me. Sometimes it just gets ripped off the, the drawing board and frisbeed. How often does that happen? One, every, one out of every five times? Fortunately not. It's maybe one out of every 50 or 60 pieces that I start, many of them I might not like and they need to go away for a little bit. Or I can correct or ad lib what I was trying to do in the first place. Sometimes I have no idea what I'm trying to do. You know, I just, I'm doing this commission and as the work goes along, I'll decide to add this or take this out or... You know, so I'm I'm the boss there for the most part. And most people who commission me to do my work, I'll ask them what exactly they're looking for and, and they will tell me, you're the man. Whatever you think is great, we're going to love. So that's, that's very, uh, that's gratifying and makes my life a lot easier than... Well, you know, I have a blue sofa, and, and the walls right. are gray, and I'd like I like this that, color scheme. You're confined if they do that to you. Yeah. I mean, I'm not confined that I, I can't do it. No, but, but your it, creativity. A little bit. But that's fine. That's fine also because I can, I can be creative within them parameters most times. If I see or I foresee that... I won't be able to do that. Tell them no. I mean, I hate doing that because right. that's 
what I do, you know. Right. But I'll say, you know, maybe you need this person or that person. I'll give them names of other artists, you know, and and um, then I'll get a phone call down the road. Hey, thanks a lot, man. That was a great commission. I'm like, right on. What's your favorite thing to paint? I know originally I think it was like warblers, right? I do a lot of birds. I love birds. Probably 50% of my income is birds. I just love the angles and I love the way they can be turned and, and still look really good. Where, you know, I, I do a lot of fish paintings because die, I live in the Florida Keys and I do some tournament work and all that. And um, it's very difficult to stay out of that formulaic process. You know, <clears throat> but if you've got 10 pieces for a tournament. I mean, I don't start one at a time. I mean, I do all 10 at one time. And when the first one, I'm done with the first part of it, it goes outside in the sun or it goes someplace else in the studio. And then I start the second one. And by the time I'm through with the seventh or eighth one, the first one is ready to be worked into again. You know. So it's like an assembly line. In a way, yes. You know, it's just a, it's just a, um, a good way to do it, rather than me doing one piece, signing it, sealing it, and then starting another one. You know, if mm -hmm. if I have to do seven fish paintings of a certain species, you know, I'll lay out all the reference, and I use mostly my own reference photos, and um. It's just easier to do it. And I, it, I hate to say assembly line, but that's probably in a sense correct in some circumstances. I once did, I once did like 17 paintings for a private tournament. And at the end, when I was done, I was like, whoa. Beat up. I just started signing them one after another. I spelled my name wrong on <laughs> Speaking to a good friend of yours last night, Timmy Hoover, and, and a good friend of mine too, one of the greatest, greatest guides that's ever pushed a boat down here in the Florida Keys. He was telling me that in the early years, he, he you got him into fly fishing. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But he was saying one day after a long day of fishing, you guys went into the no-name tavern in the Laura Keys on Big Pine and you went into the bathroom and it didn't come out for about 45 minutes and he went in looking for you and you had painted all the walls of the bathroom if I'm not mistaken that were that was just an amazing array of fish art I wouldn't say I painted them but I did burn through a bunch of sharpies <laughs> well, that's, yeah. yeah and and you know what it looked great to me and there was um I used to do this little drawing sometimes on bathroom walls real quick and it was always it was snookhead you know and it was always i'd sign up beyond these walls are snook with teeth and that was it and uh you go back into a place and and you know they look at you and they give you the hairy eyeball and <laughs> they'd say you're gonna clean that up and i'm like what <laughs> right sharpie sticking out of the front pocket <laughs> stuff bad Timmy said it was outrageous, and they left it up for years because it was so good. There's one right now still at the Safari Lounge that I probably did 
25 years ago. Tell me about the Safari Lounge. Well, the locals call it the Dead Animal Bar. And um, I once lived at Mile Marker 72, and that was between Channel 2 and Channel 5 Bridge. So the Safari is just on the other side of Channel 2, and it was the only place to go and maybe hang out with people, your friends, whatever. After a night of maybe fishing, tarpon at the bridges, you could idle in there and, and go and have a couple beers. And it was, uh, and then the next morning, you know, hair would smell like cigarettes. You didn't know the person next to you. It's just, ugh. But we never stopped and we never gave up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got some intel from your son last night. I was I was texting oh with Joseph last night, and you know he he wanted me to. Well, he brought up the fact that back in the early days, there was one day you caught five bonefish over thirteen pounds. That's false. <clears throat> However, there were five fish, and the smallest was twelve pounds, eight ounces. Tell me about that day. You know, I was fishing with a good friend of mine, and all he ever wanted to do was fish, downtown fish, giant fish. Used to drive me nuts, but the deal was, every day I fished him, he had to buy a painting from me. So that's how that worked out. <clears throat> he'd fish me for five days, he'd get five paintings. But he'd drive me crazy, and one one morning we pull up to a place in downtown and um, I said, there's a fish right there. And he throws at it. It was just kind of getting light out and it's a tank. And we chase him across a couple channels. I mean, with the prop down, the whole works, you know, which is bad. But we got the fish to the boat and I was like, whoa, that's a big one. Oh, it came out. And we were like, no. And it was obviously way, way over 10 pounds. So we pick up the broken pieces and I pull a little bit more. Two fish coming down the bank. Boom, he's got a 12.8. Then he's got a 13.1. Then he's got a 13.4. And these are on boga grips. <clears throat> and he looks back at me and he says, you want a shot? And I'm like, fuck yeah, I do, man. It's <laughs> freaking happening today. So it was already, you know, getting like 9, 30, 10 o'clock, whatever. And jet skis were starting to kind of... What are the conditions? Overcast, blowing? No, it was it was just the nicest freaking day. Really? I mean, it was a little breezy, but I mean, it was high pressure, not a cloud in the sky. The fish were on white bottom. I mean... You could see them coming, you know. Were they feeding aggressively? <clears throat> no. Just there. they were just moving in pairs, singles, singles. So you, so you get on the bow. So I get on the bow, <clears throat> and I'm at the top of my game. I mean, I'm really fishing well. And the first two fish that come down the bank, that crab fly lands right there, and it sinks down. And one of them turns around, and he goes, ah. And then a jet ski goes by. And then my friend's on the phone. He's on one of them big Seinfeld phones or something. Talking to a friend. And I look and I see another single coming. 
same thing. I mean, exactly where I wanted to put that fly. Same thing. He looked at it, watched it, and he's done. Earlier that morning, very early, <clears throat> we had been fishing snook at one of the bridges with spinning rods and big live shrimp. And I said, fuck this. So I open up the well and there's one shrimp in left, one shrimp left in there. And it's like eight inches long. I mean, it's a giant. So I grab a spinning rod and I hook it through the horn and, and two fish come down the bank and I throw out in front of them and the shrimp is down there, you know, and I'm watching the fish, watching the fish, they get up to it. And when they get kind of close, I can feel that shrimp, dunk, 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 dunk. you know, it, that's how big it was. You could you feel, feel that kicking. Thing. Wow. And um, I was just going to reel it in and throw out in front of them again and one of them turns around real slow, he eases down, and I feel, boom, boom. And my friend was like, oh my God. So I reeled on, and I hook him up, and he goes tearing off across like three different flats separated by little skinny channels. And he's saying, Tim, that's the biggest bonefish ever. It's the biggest bonefish ever. And I said, no, I think it's like 11. And he said, no, 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 no. So we chase the whole thing down. We get it to the boat. He puts the nut under it, and I said, it's probably 12. And my friend's like, no, it's the biggest bonefish ever. He picks it up, and he sets it down on the bottom of the skiff. And I went, oh, very good one. So I said, let's just um, take a couple photos, let it go. And he goes, no, 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 no. He's on the phone right away to George at Worldwide. And he said, bring the canoe down. We're going to bring in the fish away. So we go. and um, there's Put him in a live well. Put him in a live well. Yeah. yeah. We get there and the canoe's there and the fish is all, you know, upright and, and fun in the live well. And we throw it on the scale. And the first number I saw was 17.6. Holy cow. And I'm like, take it off the canoe. <laughs> and then it moderated to 14.6. And I'm like, that's still a good one. <clears throat> but um, it's funny because that's still a world record that I own. And it's only funny because I threw 12-pound spin at it. But the line over tested. Oh. So they put me in 16 pound. <clears throat> if it would have tested at 12, it's the fish is sick like 15 something, you know. But by bumping me up to 16, because nobody in their right mind fishes bonefish on 16 spin, I got a world record. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. And is, it, does it, is it still standing? Every year I get that magazine and go right to the spin bonefish. Yep, there I am. It's the only time over-testing would be a victory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so that was so fortunate, but not that I care about right. world records anyways. Right. But I'm always curious whenever I see the new one come out, you know. You know, you've been uh, a great fly designer for years. Um, how much of your art and fly design, and when you design a fly... How do you go about designing these great flies that have worked so well and caught all these world record fish that have been caught with your with your patterns? When I first started tying flies, and I still have my very first fly, 
I wouldn't be able to find it for you guys right now. But I still have it, and I still have the very first fly that I ever sold commercially. Um, How old were you? <clears throat> probably 26. But um, And you still have some designs out there that you make commissions on from companies? I sick Joseph on them. Well, yes, you know, um, Montana Fly Company sells my stuff. You know, and then I just get royalties right. quarterly. But um, the way I, I tie flies or began tying flies, I wasn't trying to imitate anything specific. I was more about being impressionistic with patterns that imitated many more things or suggestive, you know, suggested different things. So I wasn't tying a crab with the little pinchers, you know. I was tying a deer hair bug with palm root hackles and, and splayed kickers and and um and the fish liked it and as i got a little bit better with the fly rod they liked it even more so because you know how to feed that fish with your fly pattern exactly you know how to make it dance if you will well it's easier as you become conditioned to looking at fish and reading fish and you know that andy right. you know you see a fish coming down a bank you know where you want to be and when you want to be there, you know? If you're just starting out, you know, <clears throat> I can catch a lot of fish on my flies, but I could give them patterns to somebody else. And um, I don't want to mention any names, but... Mention, and maybe they, mention they, them. Maybe please, they please. wouldn't <laughs> do so well. <laughs> Maybe the person who invented Heinz ketchup or something, you know what I mean? He he might not polite. do so well. He would probably kind of throw it towards them as opposed to where it should be. You have to do your job correctly most times. And um, if you do, then the odds are in your favor. You know, there's certain circumstances where you just lob at a fish or something and he just comes unglued and shoves it in his mouth, you know. But day in and day out with fish that maybe see a little pressure, maybe it's really shallow water, there's no wind, you know. Them fish need to be addressed. <clears throat> When you see a fish, there's a little bit of math you need to do. And you know this, Andy, as well as anybody. And that math will tell you what you need to do to get that equation right. You know, just a little bit of foresight before you put the fly in the water will outfish most patterns. You know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. 
Are you more of a bone fisherman or a tarpon fisherman? And what flies do you like to tie more than another? You know what? I, I love them both. For years, I thought if I only had one day left, it'd be tarpon. And um, and then the bone fishing got kind of fun because I grew with it a little bit. I got maybe a little bit better at it. And and, and success equals you want more, you know? Right. Um, flies for tarpon, I'm pretty general. You know, I'm a generalist. I remember one time fishing up above the pocket and Billy that's, and his, that's a sacrilegious place yeah you know uh, that's a Pulaski spot that's like spot. a no motor zone isn't <laughs> that's, it <laughs> that's a Pulaski spot and and I don't know why I was there I just I, I just went there and just but I was above that little ditch you know and I thought eh no harm no foul <laughs> major foul major and, and harm just creamed them that night I got home and a friend called me up and he said, damn, what fly were you using? Was that you ahead of the pocket? <laughs> I'm like, oh, Billy. Yeah, it was me. I said, come on over and I'll show it to you. And he, I mean, he came right over. You're and, talking about uh, Billy Pate? Yeah. And um, I showed him the fly and he says, this? And it was a toad fly which later became very popular in a different color, but I had tied that rag head with the polypropylene, and it was tan and green, a dark green, with just a natural rabbit tail. And it just creamed them. It did. And this was before Gary started tying them? No, it's kind of like... It's, well, I want to ask Borski. It's a little funny that that next winter... I was with some friends and we were down at Hawks K and we were fishing little fish at that bridge and stuff. And we went over to his house and, and I said, hey, I need to use the head or whatever. And I walk into his room and I see that chartreuse and yellow toad sitting in his vice. And I said, what's with that? You're not supposed to see that. So you. So he tied it. He tied it a different color and it became really, really famous and justifiably so. For sure. Yeah. So you your design of the toad may have been before his design. Or almost at the That's same what time. He's saying. Yes, but I want I would think that we both came to the same conclusion being diplomatic You're at being the nice. same time. Yeah. You know what I but, mean? But uh Gary designed the toad from Harry Spears bonefish toad. And yes. he just changed the tail. Was that any similarity with how you got to the tarpon toad? The toad that I saw on the vice the year after I <clears throat> used that one in the in the bad spot was by Kevin Garrett, not Gary Merriman. And I think Gary might have got it from Kevin Garrett. Interesting. Yeah. Kevin's very fishy. Yeah. I'll tell you an interesting story with Billy Pate, too, with the toad. We were fishing in the Golden Fly. Uh-huh. And Lee Baker came to me. Oh, I asked, I asked Lee. I said, so how are you guys doing? He said, ah, I'm pulling my hair out. And they're in the pocket. You know, Billy, that's the only place he liked to sure. fish. Fishing big 5-0 hooks and big old homo flies. I, I tied them 
I tied them flies for him. Yeah. But he would not gravitate to the new world. So I said, if you don't mind, I'm going to give you a couple of my flies. So I gave him three of my toads tied on tournament tippets. I said, tell Billy to throw it out there and just kind of slide it, get the fish's attention, and then maybe just start wiggling your tip in small little bumps. Just see what happens. Sure. Next day, Billy comes over. Billy, the great Billy Pate comes over with his eyes wide open and goes, hey, I threw that fly out there and that fish came over and he ate it, <laughs> you know? It had Amazing. a bite in like three weeks. Sure. But it was so old school. Yeah. And the new school obviously had evolved. I remember them home assassin hooks made by Partridge maybe for Billy. And I remember tying that cockroach looking thing with the long orange head and on four aughts. Right. I mean, three aughts was probably the smallest. But he did well with them. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, but he was there. <clears throat> Let's go back to to some early years with, with Hoover, if you don't mind. He was talking about how you guys used to, like, fish at night under the bridges. Uh-huh. And, and, and like, like, slide down on your bellies and get down and fish the current. He'd be on one side of the bridge. You'd be on the other Tell me about some of the some of those uh, evenings fishing for bridge fish with fly rods. I don't do that <clears throat> anymore. But if you went to the catwalk at Channel Five Bridge, on the bay side, on the west side of the bridge, there's a big piling there we used to tie up to. This is going back 25 years at least. You'll see these round black circles on the concrete. And that's from the rub rail of my skiff, where we would tie off. And the wave action would make these concentric. They're still there to this day. They'll be there when the bridge is gone. But um, we used to go and we would, I would replace the lights when they went out, you know, because we like the fish underneath For the sure. lights. <laughs> that's hilarious. And you needed one, that shadow line. One time, Yeah. And one time I was replacing a bulb and I got a little Zap. buzz, little little shock. And I said, I don't like that. <laughs> so I went home and the next morning I called the Coast Guard at, at Snake Creek Bridge and I said, you know, um, that light's burnt out at Channel 5 and I almost crashed my sailboat and, uh, into it last night. And the woman says, Borski, stay off that bridge. <laughs> <laughs> it's against the law to be on that catwalk. Stay off that bridge. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, you were there six hours later. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about some of that those fishing evenings. Oh, my with, gosh. With, with Hoover. He tells me the story Where about all of a sudden he heard this big noise and you were hooked up to this monster fish and it crashed and he looked over and you were floating on your back out to sea. <laughs> <laughs> right? One time, yep, yeah, we used to put a lawn chair on the back of the skiff on both sides of the platform. And the deal was, whoever hooked up, you couldn't stand up or you were disqualified. Had to stay in the chair. <clears throat> and um, Hoover hooks up. <laughs> and he's like, I'm on. I'm on. And the lawn chair and him going to the water. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 11 o'clock at night. The tide just ripping into the bay. 
and I just dropped the ball and ran around and and I saw him. He still got the launcher and <laughs> he lost the fish, but he got pulled over the side. What great what great times of your lives. Yeah. I mean it was pretty crazy. Tell me about yo yo fishing. I mean I know there was a phase where you were trying to catch big tarpon with yo yos. Yeah, you know what? I don't know how that ever started, but it got really ugly really fast. <laughs> <clears throat> I found a guy who who had access to yo-yos, but the large arbor ones. Right. I mean, they were big. Instead of them little bitty rinky-dink ones at Tavern or Creek or whatever. And I said, you know what? I want to catch a bonefish on one. So I did. With the shrimp, you know. And then... uh I, I want to catch shark on one. So we did. By this time, I'm custom painting them and, and all into it. And um, and then we said, you know what? We need to catch tarpon on one, and then we can quit. And uh, we did. You know, we just drifted with crabs underneath corks, and, and we'd, have, we'd have these big welding gloves on. And if you got bit, you would say, I'm taking the wrap. And the rap meant the rap of death, you know. And uh, and a friend of mine in particular, you guys don't know him. His name was Sean. He um he and I caught several adult tarpon on yo-yos. What was that like? Dumb, <laughs> stupid, irresponsible, dangerous. Um, Maybe a little bit of danger, you know, and but um, you know, it was just interesting because it was so different. What was the yeah? I was gonna ask what what was the appeal to that? Was it the difficulty, or was it just being connected, handlining those monster fish? It had nothing to do with the being connected thing. It was just interesting in respect that we were done. We were done with drifting crabs with spinning rods. We had caught tons of fish on plug rods, tons of fish drifting and dreaming after dark with the big black flies, you know. Um, it was just a phase that we went through, kind of a fad in a, in a phase. And it lasted a couple years, and, and we both survived, and it was fine. Uh, speaking with Timmy last night, he was saying that you always wanted to do it your way unconventionally, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So Mildred Wells was painting all of his classic watercolors sure. for the tournaments. You could have done that. And he said, everything that you do, you wanted to do it unconventionally different, the Borsky way. And this is a, an assessment of your fishing style at the time because mm -hmm. you were thinking outside of the box. Is that true? Sure. You know, it makes me feel good for somebody to walk into a room someplace and say, oh, that's a Borski. You know, they might not know what the other ones are, but they recognize Yeah, my your style, style is unmatched. Sure. You know, it's, I try to be a little different. And, but I, first and foremost, I try to please myself. You know, if, if I don't, if I'm not pleased with a, a piece of work, I, I can't put a signature on it, you know. <clears throat> and and we did the same thing with the um, with the flies and and Timmy showed up 
at a shop I worked in and um, hung out and we did the casting pond and all that. And he was a Xerox technician is what he was. He worked for a guy just down the road. But more and more he's hanging out, hanging out, hanging out. You know, and um, and him and I just began putting stuff together, figuring things out. There was no help from from a lot of the well-established people. So we just kind of went and did our own thing. And, and we worked hard enough where we were successful, and it was enjoyable. Right. Yeah. And he said his fly fishing career was was kicked off by you. He was not a fly fisherman. You guys used to like fish for grouper inside of Craig Key. Yep. He was a spin guy. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one time. And he called you a predator. I said, give me one word about Borski. And you talked about yourself being a predator. He too said, Borski's a predator. He can catch. He can catch and kill shit. Hunter. Yeah. And and you know what? Hunting doesn't necessarily mean killing. However, at times it does. Right. You know. But uh, it goes right back to that looking for something specific, doing it correctly, great reward, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean that I, I mentioned earlier? And um, Timmy was a predator, too. He's kind of goofball at times, but he was a predator. He was a great goofball. Yeah, he was. So where did the snake in reptile hunting come in? You know, maybe a decade ago. Um, I talked to a friend of mine down here who was a biologist, and he said, hey, you want to hear something weird? <clears throat> I saw a black racer on the road, so I, I pulled over, and I picked it up, and I was letting it go, and this car full of guys stopped, and they said, oh, racer, huh? And he said, yeah, and then they started talking, my friend and them, and it turns out that the people were herpetologist from South Carolina who had come down in the summer to hunt snakes in Everglades National Park. And um, my buddy's like, really? And my buddy's really a nature guy. They said, hey, why don't you join us tonight? So he did. And then I was out of town. And when I got back, I spoke with him. And, and he said, you know, I said, how'd it go? And he said, man, we got a python, we got scarlet snakes, we got crayfish snakes, we got water snakes, garter snakes, pygmy rattlesnakes. And I'm like, really? How'd you do that? And he said, you just drive the roads after dark. Main Park Road. So I told Joseph about it, and he said, Dad, we got to try that. So the very next night, finds us both in the park, in the pine lands, Put on the high beam, slow down a 25, and we just start driving, thinking, you know, maybe we'll see a snake or something on the road. And um, 200 yards down the road, there's a snake on the road. We're like, whoa! You know, so I got, still got photos of Joseph. He's got this big pool net, and he's <laughs> these yellow Crocs and shorts, and he's pushing it off the road. And then we ended up finding a whole bunch of snakes. That night, and, and but they weren't all the same kind of snakes, which made it interesting. Like if you did this in in central Wisconsin, you might find ten snakes, 
but everyone would be a garter snake. Right. Everyone looked exactly like the, the one before and the one after, you know? It turns out that there's a subculture of people that come from all over the world just to run that main park road. You're, <clears throat> you're just as likely to, to stop and talk to somebody who speaks French or German as American, English. And um, the people are there all the time, you know, after dark. Was it hard to learn how to how to handle the snakes? No. Because I know I would never, and I know for sure you would never. <laughs> I hate You would snakes. never touch a snake. I just. Well, some, some snakes you just don't touch. Right. You know, you've got to use common sense. Other snakes, you know that their typical disposition is they're going to bite you, but it's not going to hurt. I mean, their teeth are so sharp and so small, they just make you bleed, you know? And that's not a bothersome thing for you? No, it, it really isn't. I mean, you have to know yeah. which ones to manipulate, which ones not to. What's the biggest python you guys have captured? The biggest one that we ever caught was 106 pounds. Holy cow. Did it have a pig in its stomach? It had like three basketballs. I assume it was a family of raccoons or something. Seriously? Yeah. We saw one bigger one time. Much bigger. And um, Joseph, as a kid doing this, <clears throat> I knew what size snake to look for by the tone of his voice. If he said snake, I knew to look for something small. And if he said snake, I knew to look up the road for something big. You know, there was urgency in the little one, you know, so I didn't want them over. So when you are <clears throat> capturing these pythons, are you killing them or are you letting them go? You know, we dispatched them if um, they were in areas where it was legal to do so. For a long time, we had permits to hunt them in the park, Everglades Park. And you were allowed to dispatch them if you had to. I mean... There's such a thing as as a python that's so big that, you know, you don't really want to mess with that. You know, so you park a front tire on it or something, you know? <laughs> and then you got like a little aluminum little league bat and you Dump tap them. them in the head, you know? And then he goes in a big pillowcase and, and you drop them off at the beard center. But um, we, we try not to kill them, even though they're all dispatched in the end, but by other people, you know, right. not. Sorry, I, I interrupted you when you were talking about the, you know, you, you captured a 130-pound snake, and you said we did see a bigger one. I interrupted you. I thought you were going to go on with that story. Oh, I remember the night, and it was late, school night, Joseph is next to me. And we're doing one final lap. We do a lap on this one road every night. It was just a courtesy lap, we called it, the courtesy lap. And um, Joseph says, snake. And I look up, and I see this. Big old head sticking out of the grass. And I said, that's a big one. He goes, yeah, Dad, that looks like a big one. And it looked like it wanted to go across the road. I said, what do we do? Because he's only like 10, you know. It's food and, for him. Yeah, you know. So um, he said, turn off the truck and the lights. <clears throat> we'll wait 10 minutes. And then we'll turn it back on and it'll be stretched out the road and you can park tires on it. And I thought, that's pretty smart of the kid. 
killing snakes with cars. So I turn off the lights and um, I last like 10 seconds before I get the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> <laughs> I turn it back on and the snake is still sitting right there. So I I walk up to it, you know, with the light and I shine back into the grass and the Brazilian peppers where he's going. And I see there's two snakes. I'm like, wow. And then I realize it's only one. It's one big one. So I, I run back to the truck and Joseph's like, pretty big, isn't it? Like, oh, yeah, man. <laughs> you get so excited to tell this story. It's awesome. Yeah. So I, so I park a tire on it. And I can hear the snake on my undercarriage, like, scratching with his teeth and stuff. Um, with uh, it was a different truck at the time, and the thing was so big it got out from underneath my front tire. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So I don't know how big it was. We didn't it catch it. We got away. The big it was fun. Yeah, we got away. So, anyways, and and you know what? Interesting aside to the the fishing and the snake hunting is they're both very closely related pursuits they're both cold-blooded they both have the best times of the season they both have their breeding periods um they both like certain weather patterns uh moon phases come into play really heavily even tides there's you can see snake movement on changes of tides even though you're nowhere near an ocean I mean, you know that low tide is going to be at a certain time and it'll start coming, and then snakes start moving. Why do you think that is? Well, they're just so attuned to that moon up, moon down, moon overhead thing so, that, so, that pulls all that. But what is it? Does, does it's not the, the moon, water. But does the moon light have any effect with these snakes getting under the road? Or is it only, only the temperature most, of the road? Most times, <clears throat> no moon is the best moon. Snakes are, what, 800 million years old or whatever. You know, they've got that stuff kind of figured out. Um, you'll see more movement on nights that are dark than nights that are light. And this far south, that temperature of the road thing doesn't come into play as often as other places. Right. These snakes that get on the roads way down here, they just... They're going someplace. They find a road. They got to go across it. You know, but there's a lot of places where they thermoregulate, you know, right. where they will lay on the road because that road retains a little bit of heat. Right. But that's probably enough for the snakes, though, right? I, I was just going to ask one more question. Would you rather snake hunt or fish? Right now, I'd rather fish. I take that back. Right now, this time of the year, I'd rather be hunting snakes. But in the spring, summer, fall, I got to be fishing. Dude. Seasonal, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Seasonal. You were, you were saying earlier when we first got here uh, that you fish mostly with your son, Joseph. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a great relationship. How, do you, how have you seen him in, in his life as a guide and as a fisherman different than what you knew when you grew up down here? And evolve you know technology is so much more advanced right now 
Um, I can remember people with Loran C trying to find a wreck someplace and they'd still have to look for a turtle or a group. You know, nowadays just kids get on their phone and they know how to use that to their advantage, which is good and smart and the correct thing to do so you don't fall behind. I see the kids nowadays, at least the kids that my boy Joseph hangs with, if you show them a fish, they expect to catch it. I mean, that's just cut and dry. Where back when I was uh, developing fly patterns and, and trying to get better with my fishing and stuff, you know, if somebody showed me a fish, I would hope that it would bite. There's a huge difference between I expect to catch that fish. I hope maybe he'll bite. You know but what is I mean? that because of the fly design and the sophistication of the flies and the food that they're using now? I mean, obviously, you are a great caster. He's a great caster. He knows where to put the fly. So do you think it's about, about the food they're throwing? In certain arenas, quite possibly. Um, but I just think that... Uh, the advent of floral carbon and a little better equipment and and you know that cocky ballsy you know this is me that's you you're coming to hand you know what I mean yeah the conviction if you're a little bit tentative about it you'll catch less fish if you've done your math like I said before you expect to get a reaction and beyond that, you expect to get a positive reaction. You know, if you get a negative reaction, it's something you probably did wrong or something that was wrong with the fish. You know, maybe it was bumped a little bit. But uh, it's interesting watching Joseph especially the last few years because if I show him a fish he just turns around and he looks at me and he says watch this dad and that's it I mean it's nine times out of ten eight times out of ten that fish comes to hand does he have it's quite impressive so is he is he a guide now he's not yet um, you know, he's busy with school. He's doing all his captain's courses and stuff. And, and you know, he had to pick a major when he, <clears throat> when he started going to college. So he did marine biology just because. And he said, you know, Dad, I, I want the front of the skiff, the pointy end. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to be a biologist, you know, and, and, not make the money so he switched his majors in and um he'll supplement a little bit you know just through his own channels with some guiding which goes a long way when when somebody else is paying all your bills you yeah, know what i sure. mean yeah i got a question for you we were speaking last night about being an artist and you said mm -hmm. artists are weirdos uh-huh in what way are you a weirdo oh fuck man You know what? I'm pretty normal. 
<laughs> well, we were speaking about and I, and weirdos I, and, I stand and eccentrics. By, and I stand by that. <laughs> and then we said, I think that they're eccentric too. So eccentric is a person of unconventional and slightly strange views or behavior, i.e. not centered on the same point as another, which is you. Eclectic is a person who derives ideas, style, or taste from a broad and diverse range of sources, i.e. belonging to a class of ancient philosophers who did not belong to or found any recognized school of thought, but selected such doctrines as they wished from various sources. You know, all of that that you just read tells me that you're a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Dude. There's, there's a little off kilter something. Maybe I'm an there. artist. I am an you artist. Could. You are. Yeah, I mean, there you go. An artist. Where would you like to? Uh, what would you like to tell people that they don't know about Timborski? You know, if they don't know it about me, they probably shouldn't. You know, I'd that's I see such you such a be- weird that's such a, a wild question. It's so encom- unencompassing, you know, it's just you know, I'm Well you're private and I've seen that you've become a little bit more of a reclusive person in mm-hmm. the last number of years. Why is that? You know what? Family tends to tends to put you in places that you like. You know what I mean? I as I grew older, you know, the idea of going out to these establishments and stuff that we once frequented on a nightly basis became not real interesting. Or the idea of walking the water pipe after dark at at tea table bridge became dangerous, you know, all of a sudden. And, you know, I just, I kind of hang here, do my thing. There's not many people that will join you hunting snakes. And there's, and there's probably very few people that would join you to fish tarpon with the hand line or yo-yo. You know, so by default, you you get a little bit segregated, separated from, from the masses. You know, I mean, I still go to kickoff dinners and awards banquets, and um, but most of my time is spent with people that spend it after dark in the field on the water you know and you just you just can't just can't spend all day doing something and then all night too you've got to kind of pick a selective yeah you got to pick a season as it were or maybe you know a choice between hey do i stay out all night chasing critters or do I stay out all day fishing it you know it's it's difficult and I think that maybe not for you but I think as a person gets a little bit older a lot of stuff that would really motivate you to get out there and hang out with a crowd of people and and talk and laugh and drink 
I didn't know. It slows down a little bit. Right. The metabolism slows down probably a little bit, you know. And um, it's easy to get up, been there, done that thing. Yeah. So many times, so many years, you know. Yeah, I hear you. Well, you just mentioned something that I found very interesting. You said that, you know, when you're yo-yo fishing or when you're snake hunting, a byproduct of that is that not many people like to do that. So you're in essence alone. But I think you gravitate towards those activities because there's not crowds of people doing that. Does that make sense? In some respects, yes. But in other respects, absolutely not. I mean, there's places I don't fish. There's places that I don't hunt snakes. Or there's places I don't hunt birds. Because they're so well known, there's always somebody there. And I think I alluded to earlier that, you know, just because I'm not fishing a certain bank um, outside of Flamingo today doesn't mean four other boats aren't. You know, just because I'm not there doesn't mean it's not being fished. You know, I think I also said earlier that I don't dislike people. I just would rather not have them around me most times. Except family. You know what I mean? And you guys. You guys. Oh, man. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You're the bomb. But, but, you know, it's it's not anything weird. It's just no, I, you, know, you I just get it. end up doing other things. And if somebody ends up not seeing you for a while, that doesn't mean that you're gone. It just means that you're gone doing something else. Sure. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're sitting on the sofa watching Jeopardy or something. I mean, you still can live a, a rich, full life, but not have to hang around with crowds of people. Certain times you do, and that's fine. That's cool. You know, that's completely acceptable. And But you don't want to be doing it every night. I don't want to be doing it. Yeah, neither you do guys I. can, whatever. I... He never did. He still doesn't. I don't like people very much. Yeah, antisocial. A little bit. <laughs> he, he, little bit. He didn't like me to, very much. You need to interview Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me read that bottom thing to him. <laughs> well, I know you're you've turned other podcasts down, Timmy, and I've known you a long time. And it's always been a joy every time I see you. Remember when we were at the Green Turtle? So we're at the Green Turtle on a Wednesday night of the Holly. And Timmy, I, I, I look at, I, you look, no, you look at me. I had a shirt on. Remember this? We're all partying. He said, man, that's a great shirt. And I ripped it off and gave you, and you had a better shirt on. I ripped yours off. And put your shirt on me, and and, then, and you ended up with my shirt. Oh, and you wow. remember that? And and you said just no, so vaguely. No, no, I like that shirt, but it was now on me. Uh -huh. <laughs> I walked up with your shirt. Well, it goes right back to that. <laughs> anyway, Timmy, you so, know, I, I vaguely, I vaguely remember that. But you know, that goes back to doing it all the time, every night, hanging out with people. You know what I mean? Where there's there's only so many instances you can recall clearly, and they have to be the ones that you spend the most time with. No. 
You know? Yeah, for sure. It's just just the way it is. Whatever gives you the best input probably should have the first option. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Kind of like your podcasting instead of them other people. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much for coming on to me. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having a, me. A lot of guys. a lot of a lot of people have been messing messaging us saying that we want Borsky's story, so I'm glad you uh, agree to do this, and thank well, you so much. Hey, yeah. make make me look good, dude. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's gonna be tough. Thank but you make so me much. No, you got this. Don't spill your rum. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Here's the papa. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this visit with one of the most intriguing people in the Florida Keys. Tim Borsky is riveting in every way, and his success is no surprise. I love the fact that he enjoys his space away from people where his freedom and creativity is abound. You can't help but love him and wish there were more people like him. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do us a huge favor and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.